Well, we want to welcome you to, uh, to Plum Creek Chapel this morning. And if I could get uh, Abby to switch me to my computer back there. So I'm excited about what we're going to be doing uh, this morning. Because we're going to get to one of my favorite subjects in the study of the end times. And, and that is uh, God's covenant program. Now, for those of you that have been with us the whole 46 uh, you know, uh, messages in this series, this is number 46 in the series, uh, you may recall early on within the first uh, five or ten we talked about this, but that's been a long time ago, and it's helpful to review anyway, but it's especially helpful uh, in the context of what we're talking about now, which is reasons for uh, the second coming. So I uh, can't wait to dive in. We're, we're actually at number seven of those, but uh, of the seven reasons for the second coming. Uh, but let me mention a couple of quick things. Uh, uh, first of all, the podcast from Tuesday. Uh, I do a standing podcast every Tuesday with the Christian Underground News Network. It was called Current Events and the Urgency of the Hour. And we talked about some pretty edgy stuff, some key things happening in our world at large and how that creates some urgency and a recognition that boy, the Lord's return could be right around the corner. And so we talked about that in the context of evangelism and how to use these current events to begin a conversation with people because even people that are not believers are really uh, stunned at what's happening in warp speed all around us. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. You can find it uh, wherever, wherever podcasts are found on any podcast channel. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. Or, of course, it's always available at the Not By Works a website. Uh, don't forget, we do have more books now at the back for those of you here that don't uh, have one. And uh, What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times, uh, 350 pages with all of the uh, information that we're talking about in uh, this series. So with that, let's pick up. This is part four in sort of a subsection of What Lies Ahead, and we've been talking about the second coming and the kingdom. Uh, one of the charts that I have not shown in several weeks, I always go back in my review and sort of look and see where we've been and, and, and what maybe I need to refresh us on. And uh, I thought about this chart this week, God's plan of the ages, and just wanted to point out that we are, as I've talked about, living in the last days. You know, the present age is the last days. That's the biblical term for it in Scripture. Uh, when you look at a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages, it makes sense that the church age would be the last days because, of course, the only age to come is the kingdom age. And so the kingdom age, as we're going to be talking about, is the culmination of all things. It's the capstone. It's the end of time. It's what all of God's plan of the ages is working towards, that messianic kingdom when God makes all things new and he, Jesus Christ reigns in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. So if you work backwards from there, of course, the church age, the age in which we currently live, is indeed the last days. And it's referred that way. It's called that in Scripture, sometimes the last hour and sometimes the last days. And so uh, when I did my book, The Great Last Days Deception, uh, uh, came out in 2012, uh, often when I was speaking and talking a lot about that over the couple of years right around the release of that book, people would mistakenly introduce me and they'd say, author of the great last days of deception. And I would always have to point out, well, there's no of there. I mean, this is also a great 
day of deception, no question, it's a correct statement, but the book is the great last days, referring to this present age, deception, because of course the Bible talks about in these great last days there will be unprecedented deception uh, leading up to the tribulation period, which of course falls outside the church age. As you can see, it's kind of a transitional seven-year period that, that closes out the age of the law, in a manner of speaking. The age of the law was when Daniel received his 490-year prophecy. 483 years of that were fulfilled prior to the church age. The church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as we've been uh, discussing in our uh, Sunday morning worship hour, and we're still in that church age. It will end, it will conclude with the rapture, kind of closing that transitional time period that the Bible calls a mystery. And, uh, and then the tribulation will kind of pick up where Daniel's prophecy left off, and that will take us into the second coming of Christ. So that's where we uh, are in this uh, study. We've got much more to come, uh, even after we look at these seven reasons for Christ's second coming, because I want to look at some key second coming passages and just spend some time really going verse by verse through those and, and kind of talking through them. Uh, but we've been looking at reasons for the second coming. We talked about number one is to judge the Antichrist. Uh, obviously, in the historical setting in which Christ will return, the whole world will be uh, in a state of chaos, being ruled by the tyrannical, satanically indwelt Antichrist who takes over the world. Um, our uh, series uh, that we did here a year ago called Spirit of the Antichrist, which is coming out in book form, by the way, in April. Can't wait for that. Uh, really excited about the material. And that's just volume one. It'll be two volumes, but uh, really a much-needed uh, covering of, of several of the things that we talked about in that series with new details added. But what we talked about there is that the Bible says the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us, and we're already beginning to see the setting of the stage for that final seven-year tyrannical rule by the Antichrist. And Jesus, of course, describes that time as a time of unprecedented deception. And in his Olivet Discourse, he warns several times, four or five times, he says, beware that no one deceive you. Watch out for deception. You know. So in that historical context, the immediacy of the moment is that Christ the king of kings at his second advent is coming to defeat this world leader, this tyrant who has had a stranglehold on the world by that, at that time by for seven years. Um, so then secondly, Christ comes back to regather and restore Israel to the Holy Land. Going all the way back to the Abrahamic promise that we're going to look at in a moment, Israel has been promised land. And over time, God gave more details about that. He reiterated the land promises to Israel, unconditional promises, by the way, through a subsequent land uh, covenant in which he described the boundaries of the land. And Israel has been entitled to that land ever since. It's the holy land. It's actually God's land that he bequeathed, if you will, to uh, Israel, that he covenanted them. So... Uh, Part of the culmination of God's plan is to see that Israel finally and fully uh, inhabits the land as promised to them. And so that's another reason for his return. Number three, he's coming back to judge and punish faithless Israel one final time. If you know anything about uh, the history of Israel, you know that throughout uh, their storied history, there have been times when the nation as a whole has responded favorably to Yahweh and been blessed because of that. And, of course, there have been times when following uh, pagan 
uh, or not necessarily pagan, but kings that were adopting pagan rituals, uh, they have been disciplined by God and judged by God. And it's just been this ebb and flow and the ebb and flow. Well, uh, throughout time, God's grace and mercy, of course, are uh, you know, always present and he's always hoping and, 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 and calling people to faith in him. But Jesus tells us plainly in the Olivet Discourse that at the end of the age, there's going to be one final moment and the nation of Israel will have one final opportunity to respond favorably to the kingdom message. And if they don't, at that point, it's kind of over. Once the kingdom comes, if the Jews haven't believed, then they're not going to be delivered into the kingdom. And uh, Paul really discusses this in great detail and outlines it in Romans 9 through 11, that in order for Israel as a nation to be delivered into the kingdom, and Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for all of Israel is that they be delivered into the kingdom. But before that can happen, they must individually believe the gospel. It's not like the nation of Israel <clears throat> will be swept up in this tide and anyone nearby gets to go into the kingdom. You have to have individual personal faith in order to be saved. That's true of Jews and Gentiles alike, and it's true from Adam forward. And so unbelieving Jews who during the tribulation reject uh, the gospel of the kingdom that's going to be being preached, the everlasting gospel it's actually called. We talked about how God's going to send an angel to preach that gospel. Those Jews who reject the gospel message being preached by the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and those Jews that reject any, any presence of the gospel that is uh, you know, permeating the world at that time will not get to get into the kingdom. They will be left out in the dark where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the three outer darkness passages, all in Matthew, he's the only gospel writer that uses that phrase, all occur in the context of unbelieving Israel. Uh, Matthew 8, when Jesus commends the faith of the centurion, uh, the Gentile centurion, he says, but I tell you, the sons of the kingdom, referring there to unbelieving Israel, the ones who actually have the right to the kingdom, it's their kingdom, they will be left out in the dark. While Meanwhile, people come from east and west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know Abraham uh, and Isaac and Jacob, but we know Abraham will be in the kingdom because he believed God and was justified, declared righteous. At the same time that he's judging the, gent the uh, is unbelieving Israel, he's going to also judge the Gentile nations who were unbelievers. And uh, that's the sheep and the goats judgment uh, that we uh, talked about. And those uh, be, uh, Gentiles that don't believe the gospel... Uh, will be on his left, and to them he will say, Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, because I never knew you. I never knew you. So all of these judgments happen at Christ's return. At the same time, number five, all those believers throughout time prior to the church age, uh, Old Testament saints, uh, as well as tribulation saints, will be resurrected to receive their glorified bodies and participate in the kingdom in, in the glorious kingdom of our Lord. Uh, the church will also be participating. Obviously, we're actually reigning and ruling with Christ. We actually come back with Christ to inaugurate the kingdom. But we will have already received our resurrected bodies at the rapture, which will have occurred more than seven years earlier. Uh, and then uh, number six, this is what we talked about last time. He's coming back, obviously, to inaugurate this long-awaited messianic kingdom that the Bible has so much to say about. And that is connected to number seven because the Abrahamic promise is a promise of a global kingdom. 
And so let's pick up here uh, with the Abrahamic promise. Uh, let me pause, though, and see, do you have any questions that have come to mind as you've kind of uh, thought about this over the last few weeks in, on any of the first six? Yeah. How do we distinguish the long-awaited earthly kingdom for when the disciples and Jesus said, you know, the kingdom is now, it is even here now. When he was talking about, obviously, they were changing from the old covenant to the new covenant, but he was fulfilling the prophecy. So the question is, good question, uh, uh, how do we distinguish between the long-awaited kingdom and what you said was the kingdom now? Jesus never says the kingdom is now. He says the kingdom is in your midst. If your Bible translation says the kingdom is now, that's a bad translation. You need to take out your pen mark through it. The actual Greek says the kingdom is among you or in your midst. And the kingdom is wherever the king is. And that's the reason that John the Baptist and Jesus both began their earthly ministry by saying the kingdom is at hand. Because hypothetically, and I think I was talking to someone about this last week after the Sunday after the 9 o'clock hour, I'm having a flashback, but uh, the hypothetically, from a human perspective, now of course we have the whole counsel of God now, we have the complete revelation of God, so we know the big picture. But if you were just looking at it through the lens of time, linearly, had Israel received her king at the first advent, the kingdom would have been inaugurated at that moment, at that time. Uh, that wasn't God's plan, and God began to reveal more of the plan through the mystery of which is a secret truth of God previously unrevealed, now being revealed, of the church, the mystery of the church. So uh, what Jesus was saying, and you're talking about there, I think it's Matthew 21, maybe 22 in that general area, but he's basically uh, telling Israel the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is among you, but if you crucify the king and crown him with thorns, then I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to a future nation who's worthy of it. And that phrase, worthy, is loaded with prophetic significance. You see it again and again throughout Jesus' three-and-a-half-year uh, ministry. And what he does is he juxtaposes the self-righteous, unbelieving Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who think they're worthy, or as uh, Luke 15 puts it, think they have no need of repentance. They don't need to change their mind about anything. They've got it all figured out. With the dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles who are unworthy. And again and again you see the Gentiles, whether it's a tax collector or a harlot, come to Jesus and say, I am not worthy. Or the prodigal, I am not worthy. Make me like one of your hired servants. And that's the key. It's when you get to the point where you say, I'm not worthy, ding, 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 now you get it. You understand that only Jesus can save you that you have absolutely nothing to merit a holy God, your self-righteousness, your position, your title, your heritage, your religion, none of that's going to matter. It's when you recognize you're a sinner on the road to hell and you need a Savior. And so you say, I am unworthy. Jesus then says, I'm going to make you worthy. Right? And so Jesus says nationally to the Jewish leaders, I'm going to take the, this kingdom from you, because you're unworthy, and give it to a nation worthy of it. And that's, of course, the future believing nation of Israel. So uh, there is no kingdom now. We're not living in the kingdom. The kingdom is always future. And I think I talked about that. We're going to, I think, go through it again a little bit this morning, if I remember right. Um, but every time you see kingdom, throne, temple, every single time, it has a literal nuance. There's never any 
justification textually for taking it spiritual or symbolic. It's just not. What would David have thought when God said, I'm going to give you a kingdom, I'm going to give you a throne, and I'm going to give you a temple? In that moment, a thousand years before Christ, do you think David thought, oh, that means that Jesus is going to come into my heart and sit on a metaphorical throne and reign, and I'm going to be part of the spiritual, invisible, non-tangible metaphorical kingdom? Of course not. David lived in a context of kingdoms and thrones and temples. He understood exactly what Jesus meant, and that's the reason that throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples who had studied Jewish, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, for you know in their, their entire lifetime, but it had been being studied by the Jewish people for a thousand years, whenever they, Jesus talked about the kingdom, they got it. They said, great, can I sit on your right and left? Great, where am I going to sit when I get there? Great, Who's gonna, what are we going to do when we get there? What are we going to get when we get there, Peter asked. One of the disciples' mom said, can my sons sit on your right and your left? You have no indication whatsoever that anybody ever thought it was a metaphorical kingdom until 400 years after Christ and the, the origin, origin began, the church father began uh, allegorizing scripture. It's called the father of modern allegory. Uh, and then, of course, Augustine crystallized it in his book, City of God, when he made the whole Bible out to be one big metaphor. But until then, everybody expected a literal kingdom. Even the disciples on the day of ascension said to Jesus, are, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? <laughs> in other words, what's going on? You know, we get that you died and rose again. That's been, you know... 40 days, and now it looks like something's about to happen. You keep glancing up like you've got some place to go, Lord, but are you going to are you gonna, you know, inaugurate the kingdom? They never thought of it as spiritual. So there is no kingdom now. Uh, the kingdom is always refers to what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant, which we get from Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, the Lord God said to Abram, get out of your country. From, a family and from your family and from your father's house to a land. Okay, there's the first inkling that this is literal. <laughs> land, right? I don't know of anybody that has real estate inside their heart. Okay, all right. Um, and by the way, as we're going to see this morning, uh, going back to your question, uh, the, uh, when Jesus said the kingdom is in your midst, he wasn't talking about a move from the old covenant to the new covenant. We have not moved to the new covenant. The new covenant is not in force. There is no new covenant. The new covenant is purely future. And I can prove that pretty simply by looking at, I mean, here's a novel idea, the new covenant passage, where the new covenant is predicted and described. And in it, we read that in verse uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This passage is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament not according to the covenant that I made with their father. So you're right, the new covenant supplants the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The uh, question is when. Um, and he says, when this happens, I will, future tense, put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Remember we talked about that in Revelation 21 as being a key prophetic statement talking about the culmination of intimacy with God in this final time when we are once and for all justified, glorified, all of that at once. But notice what he says in verse 34. No man, no more, shall every man teach his neighbor. Well, if we're in the new covenant, why did Jesus say, go into all the world and teach your neighbor? That's the direct contradiction of Scripture. When the new covenant is enforced, everyone, he says, will know of me from the least to the greatest. Every person on planet Earth will know the Lord. 
So we don't need to teach. So we're not in. We're in the church age. That's the everything comes down to failing to distinguish between the church and Israel. When you blur the lines of distinction between the church and Israel, you've lost your hermeneutic. You've lost your moorings. And now every verse seems to apply here or there or everywhere. But if you just let the text speak for itself, you cannot have a new covenant when we're still commanded to teach everybody. And that's just one. There are many others. Ezekiel 36 says during the new covenant, Christians won't sin. Anybody ever sin? I know you sin because I'm around you all the time. Uh, and you know I sin, right? Uh, of course we do, right? So uh, that means we're not in the new covenant. So well, we'll get to that. So we see a land promise. That should be the first indication that this is literal. But he goes on, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. That's talking about the seed. In other words, from you, Abraham, will emanate a, a, a nation. You know, and that, of course, is talking about Israel. And that's the reason in the New Testament you see so much reference to the seed of Abraham. And there are four seeds of Abraham. And we'll talk about those. But the ultimate seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ, the son of David. And that's why it's so important that his lineage be able to be traced all the way back to Abraham. And then we see, uh, he says, I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the third component of this unconditional promise made 2,000 years before Christ to Abraham. Land, seed, and universal blessing. So when we talk about Israel's kingdom, which Christ at his second coming comes back to inaugurate, like we talked about last week, we're not talking about something that is exclusive to Israel. It is Israel's kingdom, and Christ will reign from the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, but he'll reign over the whole world, and the whole world, every family on earth, will experience the blessings of the kingdom. That's where the new covenant uh, comes into, into play. So God's plan of the ages all along has been to use Israel to bless the entire globe. Israel is his chosen nation. That's why Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. You ever stop to think about that? Right. So even though the church is not Israel, our Savior is a Jew, and we, we share in the cross the, the, our um, Messiah. So... So Israel was supposed to, for example, when they came out of Egypt, they were supposed to cross the Jordan, set up camp in Canaan, and be a light to the pagan world around them. And the pagan world would see the blessings that Israel was experiencing. Israel would testify to the unity of God. Remember the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, testifying to... Uh, the oneness of, of God, the God is the one true God. By that time, this is four, let's see, uh, 2,000 years after God created the earth, by the time Abraham comes along, or actually by the time Moses comes along, it's 2,500 years. And, uh, and so there are all kinds of pagan religions that had cropped up, worshiping satanic gods like Baal and Moloch and all these others. And so uh, they were supposed to see Israel as a light on a hill and come running and say, we want what you have. We, we, we recognize that you're, there's no God like your God. There's no God like Yahweh, like Jehovah, right? Remember we talked about how we got the word Jehovah. And instead, Israel went into the land, as you know, completely intermingled, intermarried, capitulated to the pagan lands, and absolutely failed. 
But when the Bible comes full circle and this covenant is fully inaugurated, they will succeed. Everybody will see through Israel uh, that God is one. Now, by the way, I got a uh, call, an interesting call this week. Uh, uh, I was traveling back from Nebraska yesterday and got a call on my cell phone because I put my cell phone out there. I, I, I want people to feel free to call. And I get calls, I get emails, I get voicemails, all kinds of stuff, texts. Uh, and I generally try to respond to all of them. But I answered this call, <coughs> and the fellow said, hey, I was just, hey, Dr. Hicks, I was just wondering if I, you had time for a question. I said, sure. I said, I'm driving, and I'm driving across I-70, and I'm not sure how good my cell coverage is, so if we lose connection, I'm sorry. But if, if you can bear with me, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to talk. Well, he didn't really have a question. He wanted to lecture me about how Jesus is not God. And he began to just, just really, literally screaming into the phone and interrupting me. I kept, when I could get a word in edgewise, I kept saying, I'm happy to answer your question, but you're going to have to let me talk and stop talking over me. He said it just like that. And, and I finally, I said, look, you know, I'm giving you my time. You called me without an appointment unsolicited. I'm happy to talk to you, but you're going to have to let me talk. And then finally I said, look, I'm going to have to, I don't want to hang up on you, but if you're not going to let me talk, I'm going to have to hang up because honestly, I'm really not interested in hearing a lecture about how Jesus is not God. <laughs> and so uh, finally, I didn't have to hang up because he finally hung up after I guess he felt like he had given me the what for. Uh, but uh, there, Jesus is God. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no question about it. Jesus himself said, I and my Father are one. And, uh, and so the purpose of Israel was to testify to that oneness, to testify that the Creator God is the true God, the same way Elijah testified uh, on Mount Carmel to the prophets of Baal, right? Where's your God? Look what my God can do. And so uh, ultimately, this promise, it's an unconditional uh, promise, and this is what we talked about uh, before, that it's, 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 it's a I will uh, do this. And it's got three components. Um, this covenant promise to Abraham undergirds the rest of God's plan of the ages. And it all kind of coalesces, comes together there in, in, the, uh, in the kingdom. So again, we see the land aspect, then we see the seed aspect with the great nation, and we see the blessing aspect. Ultimately, all uh, everybody on earth will be blessed through this promise. So there are five biblical covenants in Scripture. I say biblical because those who have a completely uh, uh, messed up hermeneutic and don't practice literal grammatical historical hermeneutics, they create two theological covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, which the Bible never talks about, never speaks of covenant of works. That's just a theological creation. It absolutely presents these unconditional I will statements. we got the Abrahamic covenant, which we just looked at, the land covenant, which we read about in Deuteronomy 30 and Genesis 15, where the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is reiterated. The Davidic covenant is, is reiterating the seed aspect that the son of David will, have a, will reign forever and ever. That wasn't Solomon because he didn't reign forever and ever. And in fact, the New Testament comes back and quotes this and says that he will take, Jesus will take the throne of his father David and will reign forever and ever. So we know that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ uh, when he takes the throne, which he hasn't taken the throne yet. And then the new <coughs> illustrates or amplifies, reiterates, if you will, the blessing aspect. So you've got land, seed, and blessing all talked about in the Abrahamic promise, but reiterated through three subsequent 
promises. Uh, all four of those are unconditional, as we shall see. The reason I take the fifth one here and make it a different color is because the Mosaic Covenant was not an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was a rule of law. It was a stewardship put in place to keep order. It was an if-then, not a I will. If you do this, I'll bless you. So these first four <coughs> are all unconditional. The Mosaic was conditional. And again, the difference is conditional covenants were if you will, then I will. And its fulfillment depends on the recipient, the obedience of the recipient. Uh, Mosaic law, very clear, has blessings and cursings throughout. Unconditional covenants, however, uh, there's no if attached. It's I will. And its fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant. And that's God. So we can count on this. I'm going to show you several passages in a moment in the New Testament that remind us that God keeps his promises and even refers back to this Abrahamic promise, all right? But let's, uh, let's chart this out a little bit if we can, uh, the land, seed, and blessing aspects. So before the law, in the days of Abraham, before Moses and the wilderness wanderings, remember the law was given during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness before they went into Canaan, is when we see God giving the Abrahamic covenant as we just talked about, land, seed, and blessing uh, from Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. Land, seed, and blessing. But then as time progresses and the progress of Revelation, which we talk about in our Wednesday night study, you see each of those elements amplified. You see the land element amplified through a separate unconditional land covenant, uh, as we talked about. So, for example, in Genesis 15, to your descendants I have given this land. And he actually gives them the boundaries of it. And so if you look at a map, uh, uh, if, if you see what's in pink there, that is what, depending on who you, uh, how you interpret the boundaries that are listed there, but conservative scholars, uh, this is what uh, the best we can come up with. Uh, th this is the land that was promised to Israel. Roughly speaking, this is modern-day Israel. So Israel has never inhabited the land that's been promised. And they've had the rights to it, as Joshua tells us, so there have been times when they've owned it all. It's not been under enemy direction. But they've never actually been able to expand out. And uh, in the kingdom, uh, even the, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, even the, the geography and the topography of the land will change. Uh, Mount Zion will massively expand. That's the reason the temple that you read about in Ezekiel, when it gives the dimensions, and again, uh, covenant theologians that don't practice consistent literal hermeneutics, they say the dimensions and stuff that, it, that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 is all big spiritualized metaphor. So, you know, he gives minute details and descriptions down to the very substances that are used to build it. But if you look at those dimensions, it's so massive it could never fit on the Temple Mount today. It's because when Christ comes back, it's going to all be even bigger and better and, and more beautiful. Uh, so the land covenant was reiterated, and then as you move through time, as I mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant was reiterated through a separate unconditional covenant with David. When God says, your house, kingdom, and throne will be established forever. Okay. Again, what does that mean? You don't get to come to the New Testament, do hermeneutical gymnastics, and then go back a thousand years and say, this is what God really meant. That's not how you interpret scripture. It's not how you read any literature. I can't take language today 
like we've talked about, like the word gay, and go back even 100 years, and when Laura Ingalls Wilder is writing the Little House series and describing Almanzo as a, having a gay day, say, well, see what that really means. Now we know what she really meant was that he was homosexual. I mean, that's absurd. Nobody would do that. And yet that's exactly what people do with the New Testament. They take the New Testament and they say, oh, well, now we know. God was just kind of doing a head fake with David. He didn't mean you're going to get a house, kingdom, and throne. What would make you think that? Well, maybe the fact that he said house, kingdom, and throne. But anyway, what he really meant was it's going to be a spiritualized metaphorical kingdom where Jesus reigns in your heart. That's not what he meant. So we believe in a future, a literal future for national Israel and an earthly reign of Christ in fulfillment of the Davidic promise. And then, as we just read about, the new covenant reiterates the... Uh, spiritual blessings. So if we put these in a time frame, the land covenant, Deuteronomy, now we're, that we're dealing with 1400 B.C., get roughly, wilderness time. The Vedic covenant, now we're 1000 B.C., with the time of David. And then the new covenant, we're 4500 B.C. So God, as time goes on, continues to reiterate through his special revelation the fundamental elements of the Abrahamic promise, that there will be land, seed, and blessing. So as we read, the New Covenant says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It goes on to say, everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. No man should teach his neighbor, no, nobody. They will walk in my statues. They will do righteousness and so forth. So all of this right here is God's covenant promise. But then in God's plan of the ages, we get to the New Testament. And there is a mystery that is introduced. Something that nobody in the Old Testament knew about because God had not revealed it yet. Um, if you look up mystery in a Greek lexicon, mysterion is the Greek word, the, one of the first entries in the leading lexicon called BDAG, it stands for Bauer, Danker, Ark, Gingrich, the four men who edited it. Uh, BDAG, one of the first entries, if not the first entry, I'm working off mem memory, is something like a secret of God. In other words, something God kept secret but now revealed. And this is called the church age. So Christ came, he was crowned with thorns, and then Paul introduces the mystery of the church in Ephesians chapter 3. This wasn't an afterthought for God. This wasn't a plan B. Just because it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament doesn't mean it was not in the mind of God. God is eternal. God never changes. He doesn't come up with plan Bs. This was his plan all along. But we just didn't know about it till after uh, the cross until Paul began revealing it in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, but if you look, for example, at Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul tells us the law was our tutor until Christ, or until Christ came. Now some modern English translations insert the phrase, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. But if you have a good English Bible, that part will be in parentheses, to lead us, because it's not in the Greek. It's just an attempt to insert it and make it say something it doesn't. Literally, the Greek just says, the law is our tutor to Christ, or until Christ. It's the preposition ace, E-I, or epsilon, iota, sigma, ace, we would say in English. And uh, it just means that the law was put in place until Christ came. Uh, but after faith has come, meaning the Christian faith, that's now described in total, uh, we're no longer under a tutor. So the law served its purpose for a while, but now we're in a new dispensation, a new stewardship. Again, dispensationalism gets its name from the Bible, right? Uh, it's clearly taught. 
It's in Ephesians 3, for example, also Ephesians 1. But if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. doesn't mean that grace came into being in the church age. God's always been a God of grace. God never changes. But in the New Testament, it was highlighted. It was like high definition. It's the reason uh, the writer of Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of, of God. It's, it's a... You know, God's grace was always there. We see it again and again and again. We see it with Abraham and Isaac, remember? But in the New Testament, there's no greater picture of God's grace than the cross. Undeserved merit, undeserved favor. And so this is, in that sense, the dispensation of the grace of God. But what was the mystery that was in other ages not made known to the sons of men, meaning human beings? What was not made known to us? Well, here it is, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. What promise? The promise made all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, right? So uh, in Romans 11:25, Paul explicitly states that in this present age, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What he means there, let's break that apart. Blindness, meaning Israel has been set aside, they're not the focus anymore, and Israel has rejected their Messiah. In part, means that not all Jews rejected the Messiah, and Paul uses himself as an example. He says, I'm a Jew, yet I believed. So Jews get saved all the time. They did in the first century, the disciples, and they do today. But as a nation, uh, as a part of you know, this grand scheme of the whole, the majority uh, experienced blindness, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, uh, you know, this is the church age that we're in uh, currently. But one day, the church age is going to end when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. Rapture is another biblical term. By the way, whenever you read on the Internet or, you know, people uh, sending out emails and stuff talking about how rapture is not in the Bible, they don't know what they're talking about. They're literally ignorant. I mean, I think most of the times they mean well. They probably love Jesus and trying to study the word, but they're just flat wrong, and it's embarrassingly wrong <laughs> because the word rapture absolutely is in the Bible. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. When Jerome translated the Greek Bible into Latin, he used the word rapire, rapture, to translate harpazo, the Greek word, to catch up. And that's what rapture means. It's to catch up. And we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth when he comes back seven years later, to establish his kingdom at the second coming. And uh, we've talked about it, and we'll, we'll review it again in the coming weeks, how the second coming and the rapture are vastly different. When you look at the two, uh, you know, all the passages that relate to the comings of Christ, they cannot all be referring to the same thing. It's impossible. They're literally, the nature of the words that are used make them mutually exclusive. That's because they're not the same thing. The rapture involves a meeting in the air. The second coming involves a meeting on the earth. Right? So just to name one. That the rapture is a rescue. It's a blessing. There's no mention of judgment. It's, and we're told to encourage one another with these words. Well, how encouraging is it to, to tell people, hey, Christ is going to come back with a sword, slice and dice you up, and tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. Be encouraged. Well, that's not encouraging. We never see the second coming passages told uh, to be used as a word of encouragement. But every, second, every rapture passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thess. Uh, or First uh, Thessalonians 4, Titus 2.13, I could go on, all talk about hope and blessing and encouragement and comfort one another. 
because the rapture is a comfort, because the Lord rescues the church, the bride of Christ, before that great and terrible day of the Lord called uh, the rapture. So this uh, kingdom, will, uh, this covenant promise will be fulfilled in the kingdom. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 11, uh, some, uh, someday all Israel, not just the remnant, but all Israel will be delivered when the deliverer comes out of Zion. Why? For this is my covenant with them. See, it all goes back to the unconditional covenant to Abraham and reiterated uh, through Jeremiah with the new covenant. So this covenant promise essentially is the guarantee of the kingdom. And that's why it's so critical uh, to remember it. And you see uh, throughout Scripture references to it. Uh, an anonymous psalmist in Psalm 105 says he remembered his holy promise and, his Ab and Abraham his servant, a reference there uh, to uh, the Abrahamic promise. Uh, see, only God, by the way, can make a holy promise because only God is holy. And this is the Abrahamic, uh, a one-of-a-kind promise. You can count on it. Uh, Jeremiah, again, Behold, the days are coming that I will perform that good thing which I have promised. This is the, you know, in the context of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 to 33. That whole section in there. Uh, what promise is he talking about there? I mean, everything, everything has an antecedent. You know, we're so prone to taking verses out of context, but we need to remember when they're reading this word from the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, they knew exactly what promise he was referring to. The Abrahamic promise. Again, Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light and the ordinances of the moon and stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances ever depart from before me, uh, then the seed of Israel will cease from being a nation before me. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about how God swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. Again, quoting the Abrahamic promise. So this promise, you know, hasn't been abrogated. The writer of Hebrews, you know, 60 years into the first century and over 2,000 years after God made the promise to Abraham is still referring back to the promise of Abraham in the church age. So it's a global promise that comes through Israel. As I mentioned, the disciples were still asking about the fulfillment of this promise. Uh, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to dispel any notion of a literal kingdom because the disciples clearly still expected that, and he doesn't. Right before he ascends to the throne in waiting at the right hand of God, he reaffirms once again the kingdom is coming. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Times there is the Greek word chronos, meaning the length or duration. Seasons is the word kairos, meaning the exact date. In other words, it's not for us to know how long God's going to wait, and it's not for us to know the exact date. But you can bet it's coming. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. In Second Peter, we've talked a lot about this one through the months of this study. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? The Abrahamic promise. Uh, because in the context here, remember he's talking about how in the last days scoffers are, will come mocking those who are still looking for the return of Christ, Second Peter 3. And he says, uh, they're going to say, you know, where is the promise of his coming? Because uh, since, I uh, forget what they say exactly, but something like through all the ages, uh, nothing has changed. Everything's still the same. Everything still uh, continues. Let me get the exact quote. Somewhere in that rambling paraphrase, I think I got most of the key parts, but let me just make sure. Um, 
Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lessons, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, that's the word I was looking for, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, nothing's changed. You've been saying for thousands of years he's going to come back. Where is he? Where is he? And what does Peter say? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some consider slack. In other words, what you call slackness, that's just God's mercy and long-suffering nature. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Going back to Galatians 3, Paul says, speaking to the church, if you are Christ, that is, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone as the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise wasn't our promise. We haven't replaced Israel. We're just heirs according to that promise. We get to be participating in it as well. Ephesians 2, Paul says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. What promise? The Abrahamic promise, right? Uh, but in Christ, you, have, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, why did Christ come back to fulfill that Abrahamic promise? And, you know, back to Kelly's opening question, long-awaited is just a phrase I've picked up and used for years in all my writings because, mainly because of Second Peter 3 and others, it has been a long time. I mean, we do wait. Hope wanes, right? We get, we get tired of waiting. And, and because of that, bad theology over the last 2,000 years has crept in. And people have found themselves saying, well, maybe we got it wrong. Well, maybe we need to read the Bible differently, and maybe it's all spiritual. And they've just propagated a false uh, teaching. And then after the Reformation, when we could read the Bible for ourselves again without fear of being burned at the stake, people began to go back, and we saw a resurgence in interest in a literal return of Christ to establish a literal kingdom. Because most people, absent any presuppositions and bad theology that's clouding their judgment, when they read the Bible, they understand what it means in its plain, normal sense. And there's no way around it. Christ is coming back. Amen? Amen? All right. So any questions? We'll take maybe one question if there is one. I know we're over time, but any thoughts or comments? All right. Well, we will uh, take a break. We'll start the live stream uh, again roughly 1030-ish. Uh, at Mountain Time, so wherever you are, if you're live streaming, convert it to your time zone, but 1030 Mountain Time. Uh, for those of you here, we'll start our service in about 15 minutes.